It is a great delight again, isn't it, to be able to assemble for the purpose of worshiping the God of heaven. As you and I have assembled on this first day of the week, according to His commandment, it's been our desire and continues to be so, of course, to magnify and exalt Him as He has told us we must and should do. Our study, of course, today takes us, this part of our worship, to another one of the books of the Bible. Throughout this current calendar year, as you and I well remember, we have been reading through, through the Holy Word of God. And in particular, you'll notice, we have now read over 82% of it. And in particular, this past week, our reading has so often really been found in the New Testament book of Hebrews. It will be from that book, I would invite you to think with me this morning about some of the features and aspects of it. How remarkable a book that book is. Thirteen chapters. It is the case that in that book we find some of the marvelous majesty about the nature of what previous dispensations suffered through, if I can call it that, and what you and I enjoy as Christians. I would certainly hope that by the time we leave today, our service being ended, you'll be more thankful than perhaps you've ever been for just being able to be a Christian. More thankful than maybe have a renewed interest and a renewed zeal and a renewed refreshment relative to simply being a Christian. Because after all, that's the presentation that this particular book sets before us. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the blessings surrounding this book of Hebrews. You might appreciate that. Some have called this book the gem, G-E-M, of the Bible books. Of the 66 of them, it certainly occupies a uniqueness, and you and I might state it like this. It is a New Testament book predicated on an understanding of the Old Testament. If we don't understand the Old Testament as thoroughly as we might, we likely won't appreciate Hebrews as we should. And by the same token, even if a reading of Hebrews has brought us to appreciate the New Testament some to plumb its depths, we must know a fair amount of the nature of that Old Testament system. You and I certainly won't go into great detail, um, but only in a few areas this morning. But you'll notice what a book of encouragement this book is. I stated a moment ago that I would hope we would each feel a renewed zeal after studying Hebrews. There's another aspect to it too. I hope if there's any element of discouragement within you, a sense of despair, a sense of perhaps feeling somewhat pitied in terms of your current lot in life, I hope among other things by the time we leave today, you too will feel a renewed sense of encouragement. For after all, that's the way we're going to begin. Please look with me at some of these thoughts. The setting of the book of Hebrews. Maybe in some ways these are the matters most pertinent for understanding the major features of the book. The book of Hebrews was written to strengthen Christians. Now quite frankly, many of their previous thoughts maybe were directed in ways unlike yours and mine, but nonetheless the major premise remains a book of encouragement. I've tried to develop it like this for you. Those individuals that, of course, became Christians in that first century era, many of them had come out of a livelihood of Judaism. They had grown up as Jews. Their parents were Jews. They appreciated the temple and all that went with it. And they had a remarkable respect for the priesthood. They appreciated that that gentleman who served as the priest occupied an exalted position and he was the one through whom they had access to the greater realms of the Mosaic Law. 
they respected that priest. At this point, you can now appreciate that these individuals who were Christians, think about that background. There came a time when, though they had grown up as Jews, they heard someone preach the gospel. Maybe it was Paul. Maybe it was one of the other faithful New Testament preachers. And upon their recognition of that law of Christ, they gave up Judaism. And they obeyed the gospel, and they became simply a New Testament Christian. But as they did so, all those thoughts and all that background and all the significance of that law of Moses couldn't just be flushed from their mind instantly. They still pondered it, thought about it. And when times of persecution came, when they were being persecuted because they were Christians, when they were feeling the heavy load of the Roman Empire as well as other Jews who did not become Christians, perhaps in light of that persecution, they began to seriously contemplate going back to the law of Moses going back to that law from which I formerly had come because there at least I didn't suffer these persecutions like I am now. Hence the book of Hebrews. It was written to individuals who had been Jews but now were Christians and it was a letter reminding them of the blessedness of their current state, the honor that came with being a Christian and the fact they should never ever leave Christ for anyone or anything else. You'll notice at the top of that slide then, the central theme of this book is the superiority of Christ and His system. I suppose all of us have a natural tendency to appreciate what's better, what is that is more highly exalted. And in Hebrews, that's the message we find. Jesus' system is a better system. It is a nobler system. It comes with better promises. It's built upon better things. It has better rewards attached to it. It's better in virtually every meaningful respect. No wonder then the question would be frankly asked, why would you leave this better system to go back to an inferior one? I suppose there'd be no good answer to that question. Notice furthermore, we might develop this thought. Sometimes in light of the books of the Bible, there's a key word that appears in that book. A word that often is utilized in a very strategic way to help us appreciate the major theme of it. In the book of Hebrews, the key word is the word better. It occurs 13 times in 13 chapters. And again, it's utilized in a way to highlight that Christ is better, the gospel is better, the church is better, Christianity is better, everything is better with Christ. I would submit... Actually, the Greek word that's translated as better actually occurs even more times, 16 times in these 13 chapters. To highlight the thought then of that better nature, the key figure is clearly Christ. Time and again, He's the subject. He's the one that is presented as the one that's better, and His system is too. I've chosen to mention very briefly the preeminence that Jesus immediately has as the book opens. In chapter number 1, Jesus is clearly asserted to be superior to the prophets, those great figures of the Old Testament. And then immediately thereafter, He is asserted to be superior to the angels. There's two immediately great entities, and yet Christ is asserted to be far better than either one of them. That would have captured the attention of those Hebrew Christians those who understood about the prophets and who appreciated the work that they did in faithfulness, and yet Christ is better. 
when it comes to angels. In fact, much of chapter, the latter part of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2 will bring that thought before us. That betterment of Christ immediately brings us to chapters 3 and 4. Not only is Christ superior to the prophets as well as to the angels, He is superior to Moses. I suppose, perhaps arguably only other Abraham, Moses is certainly one of the giant figures of the Old Testament. He was that lawgiver who was especially privileged to ascend Mount Sinai on multiple occasions. And it was he who, of course, spoke with God. He was privileged, wasn't he, to carry down the very tables on which the finger of God had written the Ten Commandments. It was he who was blessed as the great supplication one on the part of the children of Israel. And yet Jesus is superior to Moses. All of chapter 3 of Hebrews makes that point plain. He's greater than Moses ever was. Look at chapter 4. Jesus is also superior to Joshua. When you and I appreciate the Old Testament presentation, we know very well that Moses died before he led the children of Israel into the promised land. He had led them through those 40 years of wandering, but he died just short of entering because of the sin that had entered his life. But you and I remember that Joshua was blessed to lead the people in. Here again, Jesus is shown to be greater than Joshua. I suppose by this point, picturing yourself and myself as one of these Hebrew Christians who was thinking about leaving Christ, if I have been convinced that Jesus is greater than the angels, the prophets, Moses, Joshua, I'm sure one would be tempted to think twice before leaving Jesus. This very day, what about those matters that have come into your life and mine? Are there persecutions and afflictions and are there words from others who in fact are asserting or at least tending to make us question our faith? Are there things in this life that may bring matters of doubt and uncertainty? I'd be quick to say that you and I are surrounded by such things. Those in the scholarly community, sometimes even the religiously scholarly community. There are others who by way of simply unrighteous living, they would almost poke fun at the very nature of what you and I so earnestly stand for. May you and I use Hebrews to encourage us on our way. You and I frequently need it just like they did. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 12, it says, Lift up the hands that hang down and the knees that have become feeble. Have your knees become feeble? Have you become weary sometimes in well-doing? May you and I use Hebrews to motivate us, to provide an unforgettable incentive to push onward and forward and upward in our service to the God of heaven. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says, Therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection. Are you going on to perfection and am I? There is no room for being, shall we say, content with what has been the case. Go on to perfection, he says. The time was when we may notice in chapter number 5, Verses 12 and following says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What a rather sad reflection on these Hebrew Christians. They ought to have been teachers. They should have been more mature. They should have grown in the faith far more so than they had. And now this Hebrew writer lays before them the challenge and the sad one at that. You should have been a teacher by now. You should have long ago laid behind the needfulness of instruction on elementary matters of the faith and by now should have advanced far beyond it. What a sobering question for every single Christian. If that could be said to them and of them, what would be said of me and of you? Have I advanced? Have I matured as I ought to have? Or am I still languishing beneath the burden of someone needing to instruct me in those most basic and fundamental matters of the faith? If it is the latter, then the fault doesn't rest with the Scriptures. It rests with me. And it rests with my choices and my incentive and my priority. Jesus did say in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things should be added to you. It is with those thoughts in mind as we close that slide, contemplating the urgency that was set before those Hebrew Christians. Is there any less urgency set before you and me? Is there any less significance attached to it? Let's continue that development by casting a spotlight then on what the inspired writer proceeds to develop in great detail during portions of chapter 5, but more carefully when he arrives at chapter 7. Jeff read just a moment ago a section of verses from the closing part of Hebrews 7. As you and I begin to move in that direction, let's at least very quickly observe some of these very simple comments. Comments that we in some ways appreciate well from that Old Testament understanding. The priests. Consider again that respectfulness that God intended to be directed to the priests. The high priest, he alone could enter the most holy place. We know those priests were the ones sanctified and cleansed even as we've been studying in Leviticus and Numbers of late. And yet as you give thought to them... The Hebrew writer makes an astounding statement. As great as those priests were, several times in this book he says, the greatest priesthood of all is not after the, uh, after the tribe of Levi. It's after Melchizedek. Christ Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not after Aaron, not after Levi, not after the various other sundry priests of that Old Testament era. It is at that point I would ask you to observe some of the statements. And again, many of them are self-explanatory. First of all, notice these Levitical priests were made after a carnal commandment. That's a verbatim quotation from Hebrews 7.16. Notice they ascended the priesthood by being born into the right family. If you happen to be a literal descendant of Aaron, you could be a priest. But if you weren't, you were not authorized by the God of heaven to serve in that capacity. A carnal commandment, physical birth produced that opportunity. Look beyond that. Christ is so different. You'll notice in terms of Christ, 
He officiates as a priest due to an endless life. Jeff read that for us just a moment ago. Building that thought further, notice these Levitical priests, thus as human beings, they died. The time came just as it was for Aaron in Numbers chapter 20. He died. Thus someone else became the priest, the high priest at least. And furthermore, all the other priests in due course would of course pass away. But with regard to Jesus Christ, your blessed high priest and mine, the Scriptures are clear, He is as an unchangeable priesthood. There never comes a time when He'll be replaced. There never comes a time He's voted out of office. There never comes a time that there becomes need by virtue of law for Him to abdicate and another to take His place. It's an unchangeable priesthood. Beyond that, you'll notice these Old Testament Levitical priests officiated as it related to the law. And specifically, that law was described in verse 18 as unprofitable and weak. As often as you and I have noted the details surrounding that law of Moses, isn't it amazing that it's here called unprofitable and weak? The reason is that law made nothing perfect. It did not make anything perfect. The consciences of the offers were not cleansed, Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 4. The blood of bulls and goats never was able to take away sins, Hebrews 10 verse 4. That law, of course, was something that was merely a shadow of the greater matter that was one day from that point to come. This perfect law that you hold in your lap. This law with its high priest who is far superior to anything that they ever enjoyed. No wonder that bottom statement. Those Old Testament Levitical priests were declared again after the manner of men in that regard. Beyond it, consider the perfectness of this oath in the New Testament. This law that is descriptive of this matter of Christianity. I would call to your attention Hebrews 7.21 near the close again of that chapter. For those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Perhaps a note of interest. That particular quotation is the single most often quoted verse in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 verse number 4. That single verse is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other single Old Testament verse. No wonder it is speaks volumes about the nature. This man, Christ Jesus, is forever a priest after the order, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. I would ask you to appreciate that those Levitical priests, being humans, they were sinners. And therefore that priest first had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer one for anybody else. But it's not so of Christ. He didn't have any sins. And therefore, he could serve as that perfect and remarkably efficient high priest unto God. Perhaps finally, we arrive at what in some ways it seems to me is one of the deepest, if not the most profound single argument in all of the Word of God. The hinging on Christ and His priesthood. The Hebrew writer makes a subtle point. Jesus could not serve as a high priest if He were on earth today because He wasn't of the right tribe and of the right family. That speaks volumes really about the whole premise of biblical silence. 
The Old Testament never said that Jesus couldn't. All it did say was that you had to be of the tribe of Levi in order to. The Hebrew argument is very deep. Maybe at that point we could transition into building an additional set of thoughts about that point. One that touches this priesthood of Jesus and does so like this. Here again, I hope all of us can have a richer refreshment as it relates to understanding of Christ and the blessedness that's ours for Him to be our high priest. As we look at these one by one, the Hebrew writer on so many occasions refers to a return to the priesthood after Melchizedek's order. In chapter 5, verse number 6, Christ, a priest forever after Melchizedek, but now notice verse 25 of chapter 7. Let's build that thought as follows. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That pronoun he refers to Christ. Christ is able to save them that come to God through him. How sad it is the human family tries to come to God seemingly so many other ways. They try other avenues and other specific means, and yet the Hebrew writer asserts only in Christ can one make approach unto God. Just like those priests, they were the only ones that were delegated by God to officiate in the tabernacle and later the temple. Only they were authorized to work in that capacity. No wonder later in the Old Testament we remember that there were individuals who tried, though they had no such authority to officiate by offering, and they were punished, sometimes with death. You might remember that King Uzziah was afflicted with leprosy on the spot when he tried to offer what was not his authority to do, 2 Chronicles 26. On another occasion, King Saul himself was such that the kingdom was ripped from his hands when he had the nerve and audacity to offer what it was not his place to do. Christ Jesus is our only high priest. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Any other approach unto God by any other means than through Him is destined to failure. Jesus did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Verse 6 of John 14. These Hebrew Christians then that were so fondly remembering the law of Moses, fondly remembering the sacrifices and the priests and remembering what it was that, that was their privilege to be a part of, they were now being impressed in their mind with here is a far better system, a system that isn't predicated on the weakness of a human offerer. Consider furthermore, these Levitical priests did officiate but who is it that saves us? Christ Jesus. Today, would you reckon yourself as saved? Have you availed yourself of that which is the offering of Christ? Have you approached God through Him and Him alone? Your own works, whatever they may be, will not suffice. And whatever my works by my own volition will not suffice. I can never do enough to save myself, neither can you. Galatians 2.16 still informs us that those works without the predication of Christ and His offering for us are of no avail. Look furthermore, 
Christ's blood as it's presented is so remarkably effective. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9 for just a moment. Beginning in verse number 11 it says, But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Christ. No doubt, these Hebrew individuals, they had often seen the blood of some animal shed. They had seen that blood sprinkled around the altar. They'd witnessed the priest doing something with that blood. And now they are told, the blood of bulls and goats and heifers, that won't cleanse from sin. It never could. But this man Christ that was hanged on that cross not many years back from their perspective, that blood, sinless blood, it can purge your conscience from dead works to serve God. I would suspect if they thought with care, they quickly abandoned any thought of returning to the law of Moses. They would have dug in their heels and remained faithful until death, knowing only through Christ could they enjoy eternity in heaven. As you and I look furthermore, these priests, and they well knew a priest always had something to offer. Sometimes it was flour, sometimes it was a goat, sometimes it was a turtle dove, sometimes it was a bullock, sometimes it was a lamb, but they always offered something. And yet what was it that this man Jesus offered? They've been told He was the greatest of all priests. And now, this priest after the order of Melchizedek brings us to mind, doesn't it, that this man offered himself. That powerful language of Hebrews 7.27. It says, and let's begin reading in verse 26, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher from the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. The Master offered himself. You and I know well that the presentation we recently studied in the book of John helps us see that so plainly. The Lord voluntarily offered Himself, John 10, verses 17 and 18. He gave His own life for the benefit and blessing of others that they might be cleansed and they might be sanctified. Here, as the Hebrew writer makes that point, that's His key idea to ushering in this better covenant. Verse 19 of chapter 7 for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. This better covenant. Aren't you thankful to be a Christian? Aren't you thankful to be a member of the blessed body of Christ? The opportunity that's ours to serve in this world, though evil it so often appears, and yet to be the bright and shining example and representation of the God of heaven. The churches of Christ salute you, Romans 16, 16. You and I as members of the Pippin Church of Christ 
are able thus to show forth the beacon of God's mercy, grace, and love wherever we have opportunity to send it. No wonder Paul then would tell the Galatians, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. These Hebrews are on the verge of not reaping because they were about to, in fact, stop continuing. They were about to cease in their faithfulness. They were admonished, however, to rethink that plan and to remain faithful to this great high priest who is Jesus Christ. As you come to the bottom of that slide, may I direct your attention to verse 22, which I chose as the topic for the lesson, the title, if you will. It's a very brief text. It says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Surety of a better testament. That word surety, you might observe the formal definition. It literally means under good security. It literally means a guarantor. To put it differently, it means a down payment or a pledge. The Lord Jesus Christ was the guarantor of a better testament. That word testament, of course, reminds us of the New Testament. Those 27 books that close the biblical literature... Those books that set before us this perfect testament and covenant. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the thoroughfare through whom it has come. He's the surety. He's the down payment for its full reality and all its promises. You and I might now come near the final point of our lesson by asking about that down payment, that pledge. This New Testament makes so many promises to the faithful. And quite frankly, it makes assertions of facts even to those that are not faithful. But there is the promise of life forevermore. And it's a, a happy life, a blissful life, a rewarded life for those that have their sins properly forgiven and thus stand in a right relationship with God. And though you and I still look forward to that, Christ is the down payment for its reality. There is a heaven, of course. Statement of Christ is a down payment to that truth, an assurance of its reality. No wonder in light of all those things, that slide closes by highlighting this whole business of Melchizedek. Very quickly, we'll simply use to close the lesson. Melchizedek, in what ways can Christ serve as your high priest and mine and do so with such remarkable effectiveness far better than any of those Levitical priests. Here's a very, very brief listing of some of them. In the same way that Melchizedek was both king and priest of Salem, I would ask you to note the, what those words mean. For, for it to be described of Melchizedek, he was priest of Salem. Notice the word Salem means priest. I'm sorry, it means peace. Jesus is the one that brings peace and righteousness to you and me. Furthermore, you'll notice that Melchizedek was even such that he blessed Abraham. Remember, Abraham, that great father of the faithful in Genesis 14, came before Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed him. Christ Jesus blesses you and me. Day by day, I trust that we can appreciate His leadership that which He offers, the fellowship we can enjoy with Him, 
and the peace and tranquility of life that only He can afford. You'll notice as that slide closes, Melchizedek received tithes of Abraham. Here was the great man Abraham, and he paid tithes to Melchizedek. You and I as Christians had better be offering to Christ. He deserves the finest that you and I have, our time, our talents, our money. We are of necessity, if we are to be His followers, we offer to Him the same way that Abraham offered to Melchizedek. Those ties that he offered maybe brings us to ask some pertinent questions finally this very morning. The Hebrew writer makes a strong observation that Melchizedek is such that his ancestry is not known. We don't know who his father was. We don't know who his sons were or even if he had any. But what we do know is he was a priest and we know he was a king. Christ Jesus also serves as both priest and king. Today he is the king of his church, king of kings and lord of lords. And he does also serve as priest, not once other than this one time in Melchizedek's day do we ever read in the Old Testament of somebody serving as both priest and king simultaneously. But Jesus does. Today you and I can only approach God through him and thus he's our priest, but he is king of his church. Have you submitted to Him? Do you follow Him faithfully? Those last points. Melchizedek appeared so very infrequently on the biblical stage, only in Genesis chapter 14. And yet he served as a model for what later would become the great priesthood of Jesus. We should be eternally thankful for the Christ that we live in this present age and era in which we can understand the great blessedness of this perfect covenant. For Jesus is the surety of a better covenant. Have you obeyed it? That covenant is not just something to enter into one ear and to rest in one's mind in an insignificant way. That covenant must be obeyed. God expected anxious Israel to obey that old covenant. In fact, they promised they would do so, though they seemingly didn't do it very much. Today, if you and I don't obey that covenant, on the day of judgment when the terms of that covenant are restated and you and I recognize the eternal loss that's ours for our failure, it'll be too late then to do anything about it. The terms of that covenant are absolute. They cannot be set aside and they will not be replaced. On the day of judgment, if you and I are not a faithful Christian, having been cleansed in the blood of that Lamb, the one whose life is predicated on that better testament, all of eternity will be a loss. If you're not a Christian today, why are you waiting? Why do you delay? The same words written to those Hebrew Christians are in fact etched to you and to me. Will you not obey the gospel today? If you're not a faithful Christian, it may be you've never yet rendered initial obedience to it. You are waiting for a more convenient day. Remember, that's what Felix was waiting for. He said, go thy way to Paul, and when I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. Friend, what more convenient season are you waiting for? Will next Sunday be any better? What about next month? Today's the day of salvation. Wouldn't it be an awful thought to come before the God of heaven 
on that day of judgment with the high priest standing there at his right side. And you knew you were that close to obeying the gospel. More than once, you were in your pew ready to walk forward, but you never did. And all at that point you'll be able to do is hang your head in regret because you never took advantage of the opportunities. And so the blood of Christ won't cleanse you. And you'll have no advocate with the Father. You'll stand there by yourself and there won't be a word to say. If you need to respond today, the gospel call of invitation is this. Believe Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. If you need to do that, let today be the day. If you need to come back to your first love, though, there's a congregation of people anxious to pray for you, angels ready to rejoice with you. And if we could help you, won't you let us know what way we can do it? Why not come forward now while together we stand and while we sing?